Welcome, fellow true crime enthusiasts. To today's case file, the Tupac series, The Life and Death of Tupac Shakur, Episode 1, Soldier's Story. Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast, where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories, immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. My mama's on the shit, my daddy's quitting, mama's steady blaming me. Is it my fault? Just cause I'm a young black male. Cops wet me as if my destiny is making crack sales. Only 15 that got problems. Cops on my tail, so I'm On June 16, 1971, in New York City, Lassane Parrish Crooks was born to Afini Shakur, a 24-year-old member of the Black Panther Party. Afini had freshly been acquitted on conspiracy charges of planting bombs in New York City after an intense legal battle against the FBI. Fearing for the safety of her new baby, she named him Lassane Parrish Crooks. But a year later, Afini would legally change her son's name from Lassane Crooks to Tupac Shakur, naming the young baby after Tupac Amaru, a Peruvian revolutionary and Incan Indian chief. The name means Shining Serpent in Incan and Thankful to God in Arabic. Both of Tupac's parents were Black Panther political activists. In 1984, at the age of 12, Tupac performed in the stage play A Raisin in the Sun at the Apollo Theater. It solidified his love for acting and drove Tupac's desire to become a performer. Afini moved the family from East Harlem to Baltimore, Maryland, when Tupac was 13 years old and in the eighth grade. He attended Roland Park Middle School in Maryland. He transferred to the Baltimore School for the Arts in 1986 when he was 15 years old. This is where he would meet Jada Pinkett and become lifelong friends. We met at Baltimore School of the Arts. It was the first day and he came over to me and introduced himself. And in high school, Paco was a little funny looking. Definitely from looking at him, wasn't necessarily like the type of cat that I would even like deal with, you know. But as soon as he approached me, he was like a magnet. It was like once you paid attention to him, he kind of sucked you in. We hit it off from that moment on. He would tell me all the time, Jada, you're going to be a star. You know what I mean? Like, Pa, come on. He's like, you're going to be a star. You got it. You just got it. I don't think 
either one of us really thought that we would have made it in the way that we did. But we knew we were going to do something. He was one of my best friends. He was like a brother. In 1988, after being in Baltimore for only four years, Afini was struggling with drug abuse and abusive relationships. And having difficulty finding work in Baltimore, she made the decision to relocate the family to California. Afini sent Tupac and Tupac's younger half-sister, Sakiwa Set Shakur, to stay with Black Panther Connections in San Francisco while she remained behind in Baltimore and saved for a third bus ticket for herself. No, she was in Baltimore. We didn't have any lights and electricity. We was about to get evicted, so I had, she sent me first. So, you know, how mothers do, mm-hmm. protect the young. So I went out there broke. I wasn't even thinking about acting. I was just thinking about surviving. But such is life. I ended up doing it, what I, what I love the most. I ended up doing both of those things. Tupac's time in Marin City would be filled with struggle pain and extraordinary responsibility as Afini struggled with drug addiction in a city plagued with crack cocaine and crime. No, she was uh, um, addicted to crack when I was in California. And what was that like to have a mother who was addicted to crack? It was hard. It was hard because, you know, she was my hero. Everything was just going bad for her. It's harder for a woman to raise a family than it is for a man. In Marin City, Tupac attended the predominantly white Tamalpias High School and was a member of the performing arts program there. His teachers would remember Tupac with fond memories, and one of his high school teachers, Barbara Owens, would recall one of her fondest memories of Tupac being a time when she had asked him to read a Shakespeare poem out loud. Although Tupac began selling crack cocaine while in high school, it only lasted about a week due to his high level of empathy and an inability to victimize the weak. Through his struggles, his grades in school never slipped, but he eventually dropped out anyways. He would eventually move away from his mother's home and instead lived in an abandoned building with friends. In 1989, at just 18 years old, Tupac began recording music under the stage name MC New York with a group named Strictly Dope. He began attending a writing workshop and poetry classes called The Microphone Sessions, which was hosted by Layla Steinberg, who was a concert promoter She'd later become Tupac's first manager. Microphone sessions. Let's let's talk about the first time you walked in there, and what happened that turned you from a facilitator to a manager. It wasn't called the mic sessions back then. It was just our poetry circle. It was a gathering in my living room. I kept saying, you know, we all need to have a voice, and and this is where we were developing our voice. So we were a small group in my living room, and I'd give a topic every week, and we'd all write together, and then we'd form assemblies and workshops out of our writing. And so Pot came... And within the second time of us gathering, it was like, well, why do you get to pick all the topics? And I was like, because this is my thing. I did it. And he was like, y'all are crazy. Why you let her decide everything? So it was a, a funny dynamic. And even though he was like eight years younger than me, he was older than me in many ways. With Pac, he felt like I had great ideas and great topics, but... He felt like he had great ones, too, and so he shifted the dynamic, and I guess the only reason it wasn't a shared um, facilitation at the time is no one challenged me. And so Pac, he didn't just challenge me, he wanted to take over. You know, he was a nut. So Pac ended up really kind of becoming a partner in the process, and 
he helped me reframe my own teaching and and then he was like why are you so uncomfortable being in your power Layla you dope and this is back then I was like huh so he was like you're gonna manage me manage you I don't even like business I love art I love what we can do I understood the power of the artist and that an artist that owns their power is more powerful than our president and so with Pac he was like you would be perfect Layla would help Tupac sign his first deal with Atron Gregory who also managed the rap group Digital Underground in 1990 Atron placed Tupac as an underground roadie and backup dancer while he worked behind the scenes, Atron and the Digital Underground frontman Shock G shopped Tupac's demo, Trapped. Tupac was drifting in the background of Digital Underground while Atron shopped his demo. Nobody wanted to sign him. The labels thought he sounded too much like Ice Cube from N.W.A. After a year of no traction, Tupac began shifting towards a political move and was considering taking a chairman role with the New African Panthers in Atlanta, Georgia. He had given the music a year, and it didn't appear to be panning out for him. Atron knew Tupac was getting tired of waiting. Atron and Shock G were hesitant to offer Tupac a lowly roadie position on the Digital Underground's upcoming tour with their chart-topping hit, The Humpty Dance. Alright, stop what you're doing, cause I'm about to ruin the image and the style that you're used to. I look funny, but yo, I'm making money, see? So yo, Tupac, fearing the streets were closing in on him, accepted the opportunity and went on the tour. The tour consisted of hip-hop legends like Big Daddy Kane, MC Light, Heavy D, and Kid and Play. On the first day of the first tour, Atron grabbed Tupac's arm as he went to swing on the sound man. Tupac didn't just have a temper, he was easily angered whenever he witnessed injustice. And he hated to be told to calm down. The only thing that seemed to calm him was weed. And so those around him tried to keep a supply of marijuana around to keep Tupac from losing his cool. This anger, this frustration that he carried in him, it would plague him throughout his career, resulting in a bunch of legal woes, a bunch of lost opportunities, and a bunch of street beefs. And let's start from the beginning. New York. His mom's name was actually Alice Faye Williams whenever he was born. And when she got involved in the Black Panther Party, she changed her name and then later changed Tupac's name as well. This was part of her getting ingrained into the activism of what they were trying to accomplish at that point in time. And I know that when a lot of people hear about the Black Panther Party, a lot of people really associate it with it being like black power against white power. And that's not really what it is. We'll talk more about that as we progress into the series. A lot of people, when they think of Tupac, who aren't Tupac fans or who don't know a lot about Tupac, they think of him as being this troublesome gangster. And obviously, he's the son of a, some members of the Black Panther Party. And so he must be, you know, part of this black power movement, you know, blacks against whites. And that wasn't the case. And so I just want for everybody to keep an open mind so that you can walk away from this with something maybe you didn't know before about Tupac and about his life. So Tupac started acting at a very young age, at 12. I think Tupac was a creative just overall. I know that all of my kids are creatives 
and driven. And I know that it presents itself in different areas of their lives. So whether that's musically or it's through poetry or it's through theater, if it's through dance, I feel like he kind of embraced each one of those, you know, a little bit differently. And I think he really liked all of them. Anything that that allowed for him to express himself, I think it was therapeutic for him as it is for most people who are creatives. So I think it was a beautiful thing. And I think if he was still here today, I think that he would have been a great entertainer. He would have been a great actor. I wouldn't consider myself to be a creative, but creativity is how I kind of cope with stress. And whenever I'm dealing with something, to be creative is an outlet and I think that as he was growing up and he was going through these these turmoils with his family in Baltimore and he was dealing with, uh, or not even in Baltimore, in New York, and he was dealing with the stresses of his, of his family and the, and the legal issues that was going on and his mom's relationships, I think acting was a way to change where you are, you know, go someplace better. Kind of like reading books too, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Now he goes to Baltimore and he ends up going to the School of Arts there and he runs into his lifelong friend, Jada Pickett, who is making headlines now, who's constantly bringing up her relationship with Tupac and being relevant through his name. But they become pretty good friends there. Well, and I think part of that too, just to give just a little bit of background, is that his real father, so Matulu Shakur, was his stepfather. He actually didn't even meet his father and even know that his father existed and really that was like alive or around until the first time that he got shot. And so once his mom and Matulu Shakur split up, he was with his mom and his sister. And so I think he was a little bit more on the softer side because of that. I think he also felt more compelled to be the provider and he also felt like the man of the house. And I think there was a little bit of pressure with feeling like he needed to take care of things, like he needed to be the one. And, you know, and he was seeing the things his mom was going through. And when the FBI was involved in the case with Matulu and with his mom. And so he's experiencing these things and all of these different settings are playing into who he becomes and how he sees the world and the problems he sees in the world. And I think a lot of these things come out in his poetry and in his music, which I think are really beautiful because it tells a very real story about his life. Like they weren't just made up poems and made up songs. A lot of it was what he was experiencing or what he felt like the people who he identified with most were experiencing. And he was sharing that. Yeah. When the family relocates to Marin City in San Francisco, he brings a lot of that pressure with him. Right. At that point, he's in his teenage years. He's in that, you know, 16, 17 age where you're starting to feel that pressure of being responsible and having that responsibility. And in one of the interviews that he does when he's at Tamalpia's high school, he talks about that pressure. My name is Tupac Shakur, and I attend Tamapai High School, and I'm 17 years old. And it's like 17 is such a weird age. It's such a in the middle age. You're not 18 yet and you're older than 16. So. But I like it. It's nice. It's like a learning stage for me. Do you wish you could be 18 and you get some more rights? Well, 18 will bring lots of responsibilities that I don't want, but it'll bring respect that I feel like that's the only way I can get it. You know, I try to be as mature as I can be and demand it wherever I can get it. But 18 is like, 
you're an adult. Well, the way that my mother brought me up is no lies, no, you know, total truth. Everything is real in society, you know, everything. If something's going on wrong in the house, I know everything. So it was like I was given the responsibility before I wanted it. And so now I can't really differentiate what great responsibility is because I've had it for so long. You know, so she, she taught me how to be ready for it. And so that's good. And I think it's good because taught me that when you get out there, the responsibility is staggering. And I'm ready. I'm going to be a little more ready than someone who's grown up in Disney World, you know, with Santa Claus is coming. And so, you know, I'm, I think I'm growing up good as in all sense of the word. I think I'm growing up and learning about responsibilities and everything. Um, while he's there, that school was also a performing arts school as well. And so he got the opportunity to continue to pursue his art. And it just so happens that, you know, throughout his life, he was always where he needed to be to hone his skills in terms of acting and poetry and writing. And so he was just kind of being groomed as a performer, as a poet, as a musician. I truly believe that everything in life happens for a reason. And that tells me that this was his destiny. Even though a lot of the things that he experienced were tragic and, you know, a lot of the things that he went through were not comfortable and were not good, they played into his life and him becoming who he was and him impacting the people that he did. Right. And continues to impact him. Now, he did do a little bit of drug dealing and some of the people that grew up with him talk about him attempting to sell crack cocaine <laughs> and it not lasting very long. And it's very telling of a person because in order to be a good crack cocaine dealer, you can't have empathy. Right. You have to lack empathy because you have people that will bring you their, their children's clothes, their wedding rings their television from their family home. They trade those things in for crack cocaine. So it's a very destructive lifestyle. And I don't think Tupac had it in him to be that level of destructive to people who are weak. He was the kind of guy that was always fighting for the, the man on the bottom. He couldn't be a drug dealer and also fight for the guy on the bottom. One thing about him, you know, that you learn about him is that he really had a big heart. And he definitely was an empath. And because of what he experienced, so, you know, his mom got into drugs and he saw how that impacted him and his sister and his other siblings as well. And having to go through that and having the stress as a child of, is your mom going to be okay? Is your mom going to overdose? Are you going to, you know, are things going to be taken care of? Are you going to have a place to stay? Like those are stressors that a young kid shouldn't have, but that he had. And I'm sure that his mom was going through things and probably dealt with some depression and other things. And so he's seeing all these things. So of course he's not going to want to go and put somebody else's family in that same situation. Yeah. Especially when you're, you have a level of empathy that obviously Tupac did. He drops out of school. I think a big part of him dropping out of school was not his inability because he goes and gets his GED. Right. It wasn't that he wasn't smart and he wasn't that he wasn't capable. I think he was disillusioned with the thought of school and he was anxious to grow up. 
and I don't even think it was just that he was anxious to grow up, but because of his situation, he felt like he needed to. Yeah. So at a certain point, school becomes, especially when you're, you don't feel challenged, it becomes unimportant. It becomes secondary to whatever else is happening. And I think right. that's kind of what occurred yeah. for him. That makes a lot of sense. Strictly Dope was a group that she had set up a concert for. And he had been attending her poetry classes. And so when she set that up, he was invited to go. He went. And that's kind of what started the whole, mm. you know, like him getting involved with the group and, and all of those things. So gotcha. had he not have gone or had she not have invited him, like that would have been a missed opportunity. When those opportunities were presenting themselves, he was jumping on them. Right. So he ends up getting his first deal with Digital Underground. And that first deal doesn't even come with any music. He's just a roadie. He's the guy that's putting the stage together, carrying the turntables, carrying the records. He's helping build the stage up. He's doing all the work that nobody else wants to do, but he's doing the work. But you know what I think is so beautiful about that is that I think it creates a layer of humility and humbleness, and it makes you value the people who are around you and who help make you the successful person that you are. And so I think that also is something that would play into who he is as an entertainer and as an artist later, because he was that guy. Right. For anybody who's watched the movie that is about Michael Jordan, there's something that in that movie that I could see when you know somebody is on a different level. And not everybody else knows it yet. And in that movie, when Michael Jordan's mom is going and talking to these different companies, she knows he's going to be better than the people who they're talking about, who are these big people and these, you know, these legends. And so she knows that they don't know that yet. She knows he's different. And so I feel like that's what they were seeing in Tupac was you guys don't realize this yet, but he's not just any other rapper he's not just like these other guys like there's something different here right right tupac makes the decision instead of pursuing the role that he had or the opportunity that he had with new african panthers he's going to take the humble route and he's going to be the backup guy the backup dancer for digital underground and that puts him on the path of a worldwide tour and he gets to go to he gets to go overseas to italy and to you know, to Germany and to Spain and, and perform and be on the stage with all these guys. And one of the things that they say about Tupac when he's doing these trips is that they would do freestyle sessions and Tupac was the best freestyler. And that had to be awesome. And you think about that because he, what he could have said, because a lot of people make this mistake in any industry is you say, I'm not going to do that job. That's a lowly job. That's for, that's for a loser. Not, not for somebody with talent like me. You know, he could have said that, but he didn't. And so by him embracing that, that was something that played into accelerating him to a level of success that it did. And he gave him exposure to a world where he was able to learn the business from inside the business. You right. know what I'm saying? It was a it was a good opportunity for him and he took advantage of it. And there's a conversation where Atron says he had to grab Tupac because Tupac tried to swing on the sound man at the very start of, of the tour. And this is a theme that will carry on throughout Tupac's career, all the way to his death. And I think it's important to understand that Tupac was constantly emotionally charged. He was always emotionally charged. It bothered him to see injustice, but he was also impatient. 
And he was also very demanding of others as he was demanding of himself. And so you start to see this trend and we'll go through, we'll go through his life and you'll see instances where he overreacts and he explodes and he, he does these things that where like he just can't be contained. And these are the kind of things that end up getting him in trouble as he goes through his life. That tells me that he had a very dominant personality and also that he had a social-like type personality because of his empathy. And because he would get so upset or so emotionally charged with injustices, it tells me that one of his top character strengths was justice. And that's true. And Afini talks about that in the fact that when she decides to leave Baltimore, she says that part of the reason why is because Tupac watched a man she was dating strike her. And Tupac wanted to fight him and she stopped him. She was like, no, you're not going to do that. And he felt very powerless. Right. And so it's important to understand that as you're a kid and you're going through these moments and you're seeing people who are weaker being attacked by people who are stronger, it creates that sense of justice, of wanting to provide that, that security. And again, he felt responsible Right. For a lot of people. And there's a couple things there because when you're raised in an environment like he was, there's kind of like this street mentality. It's kind of the same with prison mentality where there's a level of respect that's so important that a lot of men and women will cross a line that it takes a really long time to learn how to play more of a methodical chess game as opposed to getting emotionally charged and responding immediately. That's something that it takes a long time to learn to control yeah. and to be political. Yeah. And it comes with maturity. Right. And he was young. Yeah, he was young. In January, 1991, Tupac would have his first verse on the digital underground hit, Same Song. By June or July of 1991, Digital Underground got invited to play a role in the Dan Aykroyd film, Nothing But Trouble, featuring their hit, Same Song. It would be Tupac's first movie scene, and he would be the only one with a speaking role. This would be the same year that he would read the role of Bishop in the big screen movie called Juice. In October of 1991, Tupac was stopped by the police for jaywalking, which led to an act of police brutality that resulted in Tupac being injured and receiving scratches to his face. He would later file a lawsuit against the Oakland police for $10 million, which would eventually settle for $43,000. The following month, Tupac released his debut album, Tupacalypse Now. The demo song, Trapped, and Brenda's Got a Baby became top hits. He began to accumulate credibility in the rap scene as the album sold more than 500,000 copies. Its political activist message was different than the growing gangster rap rhetoric and was beginning to draw attention from lawmakers and the government. Juice would hit the theaters in 1992, propelling Tupac's acting career and make Tupac an instant movie star. It was a role that he was destined to play as his real personality embodied the role of the main protagonist of the movie. On August 22, 1992, Tupac was performing at an outdoor festival in his hometown of Marin City when an altercation broke out. Tupac was carrying a registered 38 Colt Mustang, which he dropped and someone else picked up, accidentally discharging the weapon. 
The bullet struck six-year-old Kaid Walker Till in the forehead, killing the young boy. I remember Pac felt he had just bought a Jeep and he was really, he was in a good mood. He was like, yo, I want to go back to the hood, basically, right. you know. It just showed, you know, local kid made good. You know, be an inspiration to the, to the kids. It was a bunch of kids in the park. A, a joyous occasion for people to see him because, you know, the, the album wasn't as popular as he may have liked, but Juice was a hit. And people, you know, he was that guy at that time, especially in Marin. Immediately when we got there, it was like all these people just turned around and just converged on Pac. It was like the whole park. And it was all love. Everybody was happy, little kids. He was hugging kids, kissing babies, taking pictures. And these dudes just came out of nowhere. They started having words with Pac. Pac was trying to defuse the situation because he knew what was around and he knew what these cats was capable of. And he also knew, you know, what all of us was capable of as far as what we came to that park with. You know what I'm saying? So it was us, it was, it was his stepbrother, Mo Preem, um, one of his best friends from Baltimore, Mouse, and um, me and Castro. And Castro had a broke leg at the time. One of them took off on Pac. One dude punched Pac in the face. And that dude that punched Pac in the face, the littlest dude that was there, Mouse, knocked him out cold. Bam, he dropped like a sack of potatoes. <laughs> and then after that, we just start hearing gunshots. And we turn around and ran. And the park just spread like the Red Sea. All these people just started running in different, different directions. Because after that dude got knocked out, gunshots started going off. I'm running and I'm hearing bullets whiz past my head. People were shooting at us, you know what I mean? And so Cass was pulling out guns, aiming it at us like, nah, I'm gonna kill him, I'm gonna kill him. They killed the kid, they shot a kid. And we was like, what? He laid on top of us. Tupac? Yeah, he laid on top of us. He was getting hit in the head with bricks and anything. He laid on top of us while, was kids, you know I mean? while Mo Preen was trying to figure out how to get out. So Tupac climbed on top of you guys and protected you guys with his own body. Yeah, we got in the back seat and he was just like, lay down. Wow. And he was laying on top of us. The boy's mother would file a wrongful death lawsuit, which would settle in 1995 for about $500,000. In 1993, Tupac would drop his sophomore record, Strictly For My N-I-G-G-A-Z. It would include the crossover hit, I Get Around, which would play on MTV and expand Tupac's music across racial lines. He would form the rap group Thug Life, which included Big Psych, Macadocious, and Mopreem Shakur. Typically, the group performed without Tupac. In April of 1993, Tupac was charged with assault when he threw a microphone and swung a baseball bat at Chauncey Wynn from the rap group MAD at a Michigan State University concert. Tupac would serve 10 days in jail for the misdemeanor assault. His acting career would hit new heights in 1993 as he would star in Poetic Justice alongside superstar Janet Jackson. The Hughes brothers would cast Tupac in the role of Sharif in the film Menace to Society along with Lorenz Tate. Tupac would use his connection to help Jada Pinkett land her first movie role. Tupac's temper would result in his assault of Alan Hughes over a disagreement with the script who replaced Tupac in the film. Tupac would serve 14 days in jail for the Hughes attack. I beat up the directors to minutes to the side. Let me tell the whole world. All right, tell all me right. why you did what you did. He's the chump, punk, slump, you know what I'm saying? 
you'll have a chance to come here and rebuttal. No, they won't. They better come now. Check this out. They fired me, but did it in a roundabout punk snitch way. So I caught them on the streets and beat they behind. You know what I'm saying? This would also be the year that a local Los Angeles drug dealer would introduce Tupac to Biggie Smalls and the two would become friends. Tupac would often call Biggie up on stage to perform at his live shows. In 1993, Tupac was cast to play New York gangster Birdie in the New York film Above the Rim. Tupac would meet real-world New York gangster Haitian Jack at a New York nightclub who some would say Tupac modeled his birdie character after. Biggie would warn Tupac to create distance between himself and Haitian Jack, but Tupac continued to remain close to the gangster. On October 31st of 1993, Tupac was arrested for the shooting of two undercover police officers, brothers Mark and Scott Whitwell, who were observed to be assaulting a black motorist. Tupac would claim self-defense, stating that the brothers fired at him first as he stepped in to help the motorist. Scott would later confess to having removed a gun from the police evidence room. Eventually, all charges were dropped, but the brothers would later file civil suits with Mark's case settling out of court and Scott being awarded a summary judgment of $2 million against Tupac's estate in 1998. In November of 1993, Tupac would be accused of sodomizing Ayanna Jackson when she claimed that Tupac, Haitian Jack, Charles Fuller, who was Tupac's road manager, and a fourth unknown man forced her to perform fellatio on them. Only Tupac would be charged in the assault. Additionally, Tupac would be charged with possession of a firearm when two guns are also discovered in the hotel room. Well, I just had to listen to the uh, prosecution's closing argument and it was just so far from the truth that it really just has me drained at the end of the day but I'm leaving it in the hands of the jury I'm learning a lot about people's innermost fears in this trial because as far it's not even about my trial no more it's just about loud rap music tattoo having thugs it's not even about me no more it's about you know some nightmare that these people having he's definitely guilty anybody with thug life tattooed on their stomach is guilty what type of reasoning is that you know what i'm saying we got different backgrounds we come from two different places just because i look different than her doesn't mean that i'm a sodomizer or a raper but i'm here i'm gonna go through it just to show that i have faith in the american system but for me to have faith in the american system these juries and everybody else has to you know what i'm saying play the same role and to keep an open mind i'm already convicted my whole life has been turned around i lost every job i lost everything every opportunity i can't get can't get buy cars can't get rent can't get none of that but i'm still a survivor you know i'm still coming to court still smiling still signing autographs but soon i'm gonna go crazy you know what i'm saying and, and it's up to the world you know america eats its babies we I'm, no matter what y'all think about me i'm still your child you know what i'm saying you can't just turn me off like above the rim was released in 1994 as tupac began filming the movie bullet alongside Mickey Rourke. The movie would unfortunately be released posthumously in 1996 after Tupac's death. In 1994, Tupac was stopped for speeding and the police discovered a semi-automatic handgun in the vehicle. He was arrested and charged with a felony gun charge due to the previous gun conviction. He was sentenced to six months incarceration and the charge was pending a pill at the time of his death. Tupac would make the mistake of taking a polarizing stance against Haitian Jack, who he felt set him up on the sexual assault charges with Diana Jackson, who Tupac knew had a relationship with Haitian Jack. 
As Tupac created space between himself and Haitian Jack, he was ambushed one night in the lobby of Quad Studios and robbed for $40,000 worth of jewelry. Although he outwardly pointed culpability for the ambush and robbery at Biggie and Bad Boy Records and music manager Jimmy Hinchman, he felt that Haitian Jack had played a major part in the robbery. Tupac would be released from the hospital the next day. He would recover in secret at his friend, actress, and singer Jasmine Guy's house. The relationship with Biggie would sour immediately and became adversarial, giving birth to the East Coast-West Coast beef. In 2011, convicted murderer Dexter Isaac, who was incarcerated in Brooklyn, admitted to being one of Tupac's assailants at the Quad Studios and confessed that the robbery had in fact been set up by Jimmy Hinchman, who paid Dexter $2,500 plus all the jewelry he took, except for one ring with the biggest diamond, which Jimmy Hinchman intended to gift to his girlfriend. On December 1st, 1994, Tupac would be acquitted of three counts of sodomy and the gun charges, but he would be charged with two counts of forcibly grabbing Ayanna Jackson's buttocks. For this, Tupac was sentenced to one and a half years to four and a half years in prison, and his bail was set at $3 million. Haitian Jack walked away with a misdemeanor and saw no jail time. Mr. Shakur. I sentence you to a minimum of 18 months and a maximum of four years. This is beyond excessive, Your Honor. Let me finish, Mr. Warren. The sentence is to be served in a maximum security prison. Maximum security for illegal counselor? Counselor, one more outburst and I will hold you in contempt. Mr. Shakur, would you like to address the court before you're taken into custody? Your Honor, throughout this entire case, you haven't looked me in my eyes once. But you spent hours pouring over my tattoos, days debating about what my lyrics mean. Still never looking at me. The man, the person. It's obvious you're not in search of justice. So there's no point in me asking for a lighter sentence. As far as I'm concerned, there's no justice being served here. So do what you want to do, because I'm not in your hands. I'm in God's hands. Tupac began serving his sentence in the Bellevue Hospital Prison Ward as he recovered from his injuries. He transferred to Rikers Island in January of 1995. In March of 1995, he was transferred to the Clinton Correctional Facility. In 1995, Tupac released his junior album, Me Against the World, which featured classics like Dear Mama and So Many Tears. He would, however, miss the opportunity to be a part of John Singleton's film, Higher Learning, in 1995, when Singleton would replace Tupac with Ice Cube. The album would be released while he was incarcerated. He would marry pre-law student Keisha Morris on April 29, 1995, who was his girlfriend at the time. Their marriage would be short-lived as it would be annulled shortly after his release from prison. They remained lifelong friends, though. While Tupac was incarcerated, Afeni Shakur was struggling to maintain things on the outside without her son, and her home was about to be foreclosed on. This prompted Tupac to reach out to Suge Knight, the CEO of the infamous record label Death Row Records. Suge sent Afeni the $15,000 to save her house. In October of 1995, Suge Knight would post the bell needed to get Tupac out of prison, paying the $1.4 million allowing Tupac to be free while pending his appeal for his sexual assault conviction. 
In February 1996, Tupac released his senior album, hip-hop's first ever double album titled All Eyes on Me, which included the hits California Love and the scathing diss track aimed at Bad Boy Records, Hit Em Up. It was here where Tupac began shifting away from his political rhetoric and began taking on the more gangster persona of the Death Row Records camp. He would begin dating the daughter of Quincy Jones, Kadada Jones. Hey there, fellow true crime enthusiasts and body of crime listeners. As true crime lovers, we're excited to deep dive the Tupac series with our listeners. But before we dive into the dark and mysterious world of crime, I want to tell you about a fantastic local art studio right here in Houston, Texas that you won't want to miss. It's called Province 8 Art Studio, and they have a massive selection of original art to include a large selection of urban and hip-hop art that truly captures the essence of our city. If you're local, then you can find them at 17037 Farm to Market road 529 is just a stone throw away from where our podcast is produced it's truly a mecca for all things creative from poetry open mic nights recording studio sessions to art classes this is truly a one-stop art depot for the truly creatives but what makes province 8 art studio even more special is their incredible tupac shakur art pieces of which they have several to include our tupac series cover art i'm sure you've seen it on the latest episodes cover tupac playing a guitar standing in front of a microphone capturing the raw energy of his music and spirit. This is an original six foot by four foot canvas piece by Ezra Hezekiah for sale and it can be purchased and shipped worldwide. They ship worldwide? They do. Even six foot pieces like jamming out Tupac? They do. Bigger ones than that. And by going directly to the artist's webpage at www.blackrhinoartgroup.com, you can pick and choose the material, the size, and even the format of your choosing if you're not ready to splurge on the original. You can even get special edition prints, original paintings, digital art. There's so many options. And if you're a decorator like me, you might want to throw in some throw pillows. You might want to get you an ashtray. Might even want to get you some swag. The attention to detail and the way they bring Tupac to life through art is truly remarkable. It's a must-see for any Tupac fan or anyone who really truly appreciates the fusion of art and hip-hop culture. So listeners, do yourself a favor and check out Province 8 Art Studio. Visit their website at www.province8artstudio.com or pay them a visit in person. You'll be blown away by their urban and hip-hop art collection and of course that incredible Tupac Shakur piece. Support local artists and immerse yourself in a world of art inspired by the legends of hip-hop. Province 8 Art Studio is where creativity meets culture. Tell them Joe or Crystal from Body of Crime sent you. We'll post a link in the show notes. And let's start with 1991 when he gets on the song, same song. This was a big deal for Tupac when Digital Underground allowed him to get on the microphone and actually allowed him to have a, a verse on one of their songs. Right. And obviously that was an opportunity that he jumped on once again. And this really kind of broke him into the hip hop scene. Yep, absolutely. Now, in October, when he was stopped by the police for jaywalking, a big part of the police brutality issue and and Shock G talks about this is that Tupac was irritated that the police were stopping him and questioning him and and maybe rightly so but B 
because of the, the anger that he displayed and him talking with his hands and acting very aggressive with the police officers, they put their hands on him and they kind of roughed him up a little bit right. and beat him up. And it's funny because prior to that, he hadn't had any police altercations. He hadn't, he didn't have any police issues. Now, his first album was Tupacalypse. Now, I remember when this album came out. It was the very first Tupac record that came out, and I wasn't immediately a fan at the time. I think at the time I was listening to like DJ Quick and uh, NWA and Ice Cube. That's who I was listening to back then. But I had a friend of mine. His name was Andre. And Andre told me, when this record came out, this is going to be the next big guy. He told me that. And I was like, nah, there's just no way. <laughs> he wasn't wrong. No, nope, he wasn't wrong. No. He kind of took on the persona of this political activist, which could have stemmed from and probably did stem from his experiences growing up. And then, you know, the position that both his mom and his stepfather played in his life. Sure. And his character strength of justice. And so I think it was important to him to be a good role model for his community and also to care about the things that his community and the community he's he's come from is taking care of and that things are going in the right direction to create positive change. And I think he wanted to be a part of that. And so right. I think that's where that stemmed from. Sure. He plays Bishop in the, in the movie Juice. And a lot of people say this was like a breakout role for him. Like he embodied that role so well because it's like he was Bishop. That right. really is who he was as a person. Uh, that character had his personality. That was a launching pad for him in film. Right. On August 22 of 1992, at the Outdoor Festival in Marin City, a boy is killed. Six-year-old boy. Right. This is another one of those moments that should have been like a wake-up call, right? A lot of times we see rappers and singers and actors who, as they become big, they can't get out of the old lifestyle that they had. Right. And this was a moment where Tupac was straddling between being a star, he'd already been in a movie, and he's still carrying guns, and he's still hanging out in the hood, and he's still hanging out with guys that are connected to the streets. And in this situation, a six-year-old boy gets killed. Right. This could have been the end of his career if he would have been charged for that murder. It definitely could have, for sure. Now, he drops his sophomore record, and this is the one that really allows Tupac to cross over, what we call the crossover album. This is the one that gets him into MTV, gets him, gets him in front of a more lighter audience. Um, and he has songs like I Get Around, and this is where he takes the opportunity to start his Thug Life group. Thug Life is to Tupac what Junior Mafia was to Biggie Smalls. Right. And, you know, with these different albums, just to kind of give you an idea of, of his evolution, is that with Tupacalypse Now, that record was certified gold. When he released his 1993 record, Strictly for My N-I-G-G-A-Z, that record went platinum. And it was also certified silver as well by another organization. 
So he was progressively getting better, doing better, and seeing yeah. higher levels of success. Yeah, I think part of that was that crossover. Because now you got a different audience too. Right. Yeah. So you went from just catering to this one specific underground group of, of guys who like really rock with the hardcore hip hop, gangster rap stuff. And now you're just like everywhere. You're, you have a party song. Right. In April of 1993, Tupac was charged with that assault in Michigan State. There's not that much time in between one altercation to another altercation. He's really struggling to not be volatile. Right. And you know, I really feel like what he was missing at this point in time in who he was surrounded by was he didn't have a good mentor. Yeah, I agree. And he just didn't have one of all the people that surrounded him. He just didn't have that good mentor that could tell him, Hey man, that was a wake up call. That was another wake up call. Like you need to check this. He didn't have that. Right. And then in, uh, on July 23rd, 1993, I feel like the movie that he did with Janet Jackson really put him on a whole nother level as an actor. Because now he was, it wasn't he was in a movie with a bunch of people who were unknown and a bunch of people who were low level actors. Now he's on stage with Janet Jackson. Which is a big deal. That was a big deal for yeah. him. Yeah, that was a really big deal for him. And that put him on another level as an actor. And it really took him out of playing that gangster role that was already like his personality and made him be out of his normal character. So it really stretched him as an actor. Right. Yeah. The Hughes brothers casted him in the role for, for Sharif and Menace to Society. This is one of my favorite movies. I always loved Menace to Society. Tupac would have been too big of an actor for the role they were trying to put him into. Yeah, that's probably true. And I think Tupac realized it himself. And that's why he had a problem with the script because he was uncomfortable with the lack of development of his particular character in that movie. And he was going back and forth with the Hughes brothers and they didn't want to make any changes to it. Right. So that resulted in him being fired him being fired resulted in him assaulting Alan Hughes and then bragging about it on MTV. <laughs> That's what got him caught. He ended up doing 14 days in jail. But again, you can see the repetitive altercations that are keep coming up and, you know, his opportunities to make a different decision. Right. He becomes really good friends with Biggie Smalls. And in 1993, he goes to New York and he plays in the movie Above the Rim. Right. This is where he plays Birdie. And I think this is where Tupac rubs shoulders with real world gangsters. This would be his like his really first time where he's with a high level gangster drug dealer, which is Haitian Jack. The next time that he would be shoulder to shoulder with someone like that is when he's going to be with Shig Knight. Right. So I think this was a big deal. And I think Tupac was looking up to this guy as a mentor. How you said earlier, right. he was looking for a mentor, right? Well, this guy becomes his mentor. Unfortunately, it's not a good mentor. It's not a good mentor at all. And this is what gets him caught up in starting to become Birdie. As he's modeling the behaviors of Haitian Jack and his character of Birdie, he's also integrating those characteristics into who he is as a person as well. As an actor, it's really hard not to sometimes do those things. Makes a lot of sense. So then 
1993, he's accused of assaulting Ayanna Jackson. And there's been a lot of stuff that's gone back and forth about whether or not it was true or it wasn't true. And we're not here to determine that. But there was also this feeling from Tupac that he was set up, you know, and there can be some truth to that maybe. Yeah, it's, it's possible. But, you know, you'll hear a lot of women throughout Tupac's life that will talk about like that just couldn't be him. But I also want for people to keep in the back of their minds that there are people in all walks of life that make mistakes and in all kinds of different positions. And so you will hear family and friends all the time say, oh, I didn't think they could do something like that. And so I just, I don't want anybody attacking Ayana or thinking that 100% this couldn't be the case. The truth is, is that we weren't there and we don't know. I think what's more important than whether he did it or not is the way that Tupac thought about women. There was a dichotomy in how he viewed women. Some women, he viewed them as being valuable and worthy of being placed on a pedestal, like his mom, like his girlfriends, like the people that he really had good relationships with, that he had value of, Jada Pinkett. These are people that he placed on a higher pedestal than women who were throwing themselves at him, that were the video vixens, that were showing up, the groupies, that were going to the hotels. Like He didn't put those women on the same pedestal as he put the women that he saw as having value in his life. Right. And I'm sure a lot of that had to do with the women that he was close to in his life. So his mom and his sister. So, you know, and then the female friends that he had growing up, he knew how women conducted themselves and how respectful women could be and those kind of things. And so I think when he was for the first time, exposed to the types of women who are throwing themselves at you or who are willing to do things or just are being sleazy. I don't think that that was attractive to him. And, and so I think that's, you know, what, what you're talking about is his view of the two different types of women that he's seeing in both of those. Yeah. It even plays out into his albums. He has dear mama. And then he has, I wonder why they call you bitch. (laughs) So it's, it's like, there's, there's also a dichotomy in his music. Where he's like, this person is valuable and this person is not as valuable. And I think somewhere in the middle, something happened that resulted in someone being hurt by whatever actions took place. Of course, no one's in a room to be able to say this is what actually happened except for the people that were there. So, and then while he's incarcerated, he marries Keisha Morris. What do you think that was about? I've read a number of different things where she's spoken about their relationship and some of the different things that happened. I know a lot of people would think, oh, he probably did it to make himself look good while he was in prison. You know, he had this this charge. He proposed to her before he was locked up and then they got married while he was in prison. And then quickly after he got out within months, they separated. And she actually talks about how the day that he was released, she didn't even know. She was actually on vacation the day he was released. And she said that some members of his family showed up where they stayed to get his stuff. And she's like, you got your 15 minutes of fame. And she was really hurt over it. She talks about how respectful Tupac was that when they first met, they didn't have like this 
first meeting hookup. She said he would even hang out with her and like lay in the bed and not do anything, not try to do anything. So he really respected her and she really respected him. And they maintained a very close relationship up until when Tupac died. So I feel like she was somebody who he genuinely had respect and love for. I think while he was incarcerated as well, his finances were dwindling. He had a lot of expenses. He was taking care of a lot of people and he had no more money coming in. And not only that, but he had a ton of lawsuits. Everybody was suing Tupac left and right. Yeah. And so he's bleeding money. And obviously his mom was in a bad situation. She was getting ready to lose her house. And in comes the death row savior. Suge Knight comes to his rescue, drops $1.4 million on his bail and pulls him out of jail. I'm sure at this point, Tupac had already been in prison for 10 months. He was ready to get out. And at that point in time, you got to think about the fact that Interscope, who he was signed with at the time, wasn't doing anything. And so because they were not doing anything and he was supporting a lot of his family, not just his mom. So he's getting stressed out because his mom's stressed and because his mom's not paying things and, and, you know, and he's not bringing in money and he's locked up and he can't do anything while he's locked up. He's starting to get, I'm sure, this high level of anxiety and just knowing kind of his emotional state that he has just in a regular stressful situation this was a lot for him and so he had to make a tough decision and he made it he made it without thinking twice i'm sure right he gets out and he releases his senior album his fourth album his major release is hip-hop's first ever double album all eyes on me and not just that but it was chart topping in all major countries. That was the first album that was chart-topping in all major countries for him. It was number one in the U.S. on the charts, number one for the R&B charts as well, and it was certified platinum 10 times. Damn. It was certified gold. It was certified platinum by, by another organization, two other organizations. So technically this album, it was 12 platinum Um, certifications for that album and then two gold so pretty significant yeah almost did as good as one of my songs (laughs) and then the other plastic (laughs) double plastic (laughs) the other the other thing too is that this was his first record as well so interscope is listed as one of the labels but this was the first record that was listed under death row right on the night of September 7, 1996, Tupac was in Las Vegas for the Mike Tyson versus Bruce Sheldon fight, a fight that lasted only 50 punches from the infamous Mike Tyson. After the fight, one of Death Row's employees recognized Orlando Baby Lane Anderson in the lobby of the MGM Grand Hotel. Orlando was a member of the Southside Compton Crips, and he had tried to rob a member of Death Row Records. Tupac, followed by Suge Knight and the Death Row Entourage, assaulted Orlando in the lobby of the hotel and then left the hotel through a side entrance and headed back to the Luxor, the Vegas hotel of choice for Death Row. After the assault, the group traveled to Suge Knight's Las Vegas mansion so he could change clothes, and then they made their way to Suge Knight's nightclub, 662, where Tupac was scheduled to perform that night. Suge had asked Tupac to ride with him, 
so that they could speak privately and encouraged his security, former Marine and bodybuilder Frank, Big Frank Alexander, to follow in Cadeta's Lexus with members of the entourage. While driving down the Las Vegas Boulevard, a bicycle police officer pulled Suge over due to him playing loud music and because the vehicle didn't have any plates. Suge found the plates in the trunk of the car and they were released without incident. At about 11.15 p.m., while stopped at a red light, a white Cadillac pulled up beside Suge's 750L BMW and opened fire. Tupac was hit four times. Once in the arm. Once in the thigh. Twice in the chest. One of the bullets entered his right lung. Shards hit Suge's head. As the Cadillac pulled away and turned right and disappeared, Big Frank jumped out and ran to the back of Suge's BMW, only to have the BMW pull U-turn and speed away. The other vehicles would follow and eventually stop, allowing emergency responders to treat Tupac and Suge's injuries. Tupac would be taken to the University Medical Center of Southern Nevada, where Tupac would remain in intensive care until September 13, 1996, when he would succumb to his injuries. Afeni would be tasked with making the unfathomable decision of pulling Tupac off life support. He was pronounced dead at 4.03 p.m. on September 13, 1996. His cause of death was respiratory failure and cardiopulmonary arrest caused by multiple gunshot wounds. Tupac was cremated the next day on September 14, 1996. The investigation of Tupac's murder would span decades with very few witnesses coming forward. Suge followed the street code and refused to speak to the police. Most recently, Las Vegas executed a search warrant on Dwayne Keith Keefe D. Davis on July 8, 2023, almost 30 years later. Nevada doesn't have a statute of limitations on murder. On September 29, 2023, Keefe D. was taken into custody and charged with the murder for his role in the participation of the shooting of Tupac Shakur. Keefe D. admitted to being one of the occupants in the white Cadillac the night that Tupac was shot and killed. Although he wasn't the shooter, he was a shot caller, admitting in his book, Compton Street Legend, that he handed the gun to the shooter who shot and killed Tupac. Las Vegas, baby. Tupac didn't want to go. He didn't want to be there. He was there with uh, his cousin and Kadada, who was in the hotel. He begged him to stay in the hotel. One thing that I find ironic is that Tupac frequently wore a bulletproof vest. And that day he said it was too hot and he chose not to wear it. That could have saved his life. Possibly. I actually think that one of his deadliest wounds was there was a bullet that I believe from the way that they described it possibly entered his thigh and maybe into his pelvic region. He also had a portion of his lung removed. I don't necessarily think that that would have been a deadly wound. I think that they could have handled that. I think it was the bleeding. And the reason the reason I think that is because he had emergency surgery that same night to remove blood from his pelvic region. And then he started just crashing. And because he started crashing, they ended up going back in and doing an exploratory surgery. So possibly, possibly it could have, but maybe not. The 
situation with Orlando, baby Lane Anderson. It's a bad situation. It is. And it's so unfortunate to me because like at a certain point, you have to leave that life behind. And if you're in a position, again, you got to play chess and you got to be political. If you're in a position where you're the breadwinner, where you're the person making money, you're the star who's continually elevating yourself to another level and another level. You cannot be the one to get your hands dirty. Your people cannot allow for you to get your hands dirty. So for anybody to egg you on or to say, hey, so-and-so's over, knowing how he is, first of all, because anybody who was in his circle that night would have known how he is. So if somebody disrespected you and then somebody in your group is like, hey, there he is over there, what do you think he's going to do? Right. So a better way to have handled that would have been to not to have allowed for him to see that he was even there. Right. To To have ignored him. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that from what I'm understanding, and we'll get into this in future episodes, the situation with Keefe D is that somebody put a hit on Tupac. I don't know if they put a hit on Tupac and Suge, but from my understanding is someone had put a hit on Tupac and Keefe D was already planning on killing Tupac for the money. Right. But when his nephew, Orlando, gets jumped by Tupac, now we have it's a like good- like the icing on the cake. Yeah, now yeah. we have a good reason. Now there's more of a reason to do this and there's more urgency on on getting it done as well. And so I think that was a vital mistake on Tupac's part. But to play devil's advocate, they were at a Mike Tyson boxing fight. They had just witnessed Mike Tyson knock out a guy. And I'm going to say, whenever I go to the movies, if I, I watch if, if I watch a, a fighting movie, I leave the theater, I'm shadow boxing the whole way to the car, right? <laughs> if I watch Fast and Furious, you best believe I'm speeding all the way home because I got that energy. And right. I, I think they left the fight with that energy. Not just that, but Tupac was close friends with Mike Tyson. With Mike Tyson. Yeah. And he they had actually shared a hug right after the win off to the side before they exited. So yeah, he was amped up. So already he's an emotionally charged person. We already know that. And then he's leaving this fight that ended super fast. It was quick. That's some amped up aggressive energy that you're going to have leaving. Now, the four guys in the in the white Cadillac, Tupac and Suge are the only people who know who the shooter are. And no one's talking. And it's unfortunate because... The family never really gets closure. The family who's not part of the street code never gets the closure. It, it is the street code, and the street code is what it is. And and you can't blame anybody when you when you live a certain kind of way, and that's how you live. You have to live according to that code. I get it, but it's the family who suffers. The family who doesn't get the answers. The family who's trying to put their family to rest and trying to put this behind them. They're the ones who don't get any answers, and they're the ones that struggle. I think early on, everybody knew who was responsible. Yeah, but it's not The people knowing. close to it, yeah, is, it, what it is what I mean. The, it's the, problem, the justice. Yeah, it, but, but it's not even that. It, it's not knowing. It, it's not being able to hold anybody accountable. Because right. even though I know you did it, I don't have the evidence. No one's going to come and say, yes, I saw this person that was there. It's not until the future where Keefe D can't keep his mouth shut, where he has to go on Vlad and he has to go on all these talk shows and he goes, yeah, I handed the gun to the shooter. 
<laughs> what happened to the street code, dumbass? <laughs> he don't know how to play chess. I think he was thinking, well, everybody else that was in the car with me is dead, so I yeah. can say whatever I want. And I think that's it, part of it. I think I think you're right. I think that's part of it because once you're gone and you're no longer here, then the street code no longer applies because no one's getting in trouble over what happened 30 years ago. Not just that, but he wasn't saying he wasn't the shooter. And in Nevada, so now this isn't all states, but in Nevada, there is a law that allows for them to charge you if you were a part of a murder. So yeah. even though you weren't the one to pull the trigger. So yeah. he didn't do his research very well. No, we <laughs> call that dry snitching. On yourself. <laughs> <laughs> On yourself. And so now he's uh, he is incarcerated in, um, and he's facing charges uh, for murder. So we'll see how that works out for, for Keefe D. Tupac's life set him on a crash course with destiny. Purported to have psychic abilities, the words of his music played prophetically throughout his life. From East Harlem to Baltimore to Marin City, Tupac searched for an outlet to his creativity and found it in poetry. When put to a rhythm, was and is hip-hop. He found half of his passion in rap and the other half of his artistry in film. His records would go on to sell more than 75 million copies with the release of the fifth album already completed at the time of his death, The Don Caluminati, The Seven Day Theory, recorded in one week, a month before his death. He would also release three movies after his death as well, Bullet with Mickey Rourke on October 1st, about a month after his death. Gridlocked with actor Tim Roth on January 29, 1997, four months after his passing, and gang-related with James Belushi and Dennis Quaid on October 8, 1997, almost a year after his death. Considered one of the most influential rappers of all time, he can often be found on your favorite rapper's top 10 list. Throughout his legal woes and street beefs, many thought Tupac was immortal, with everyone expecting him to pull through after the Vegas shooting. Our series, The Life and Death of Tupac, will give you a deeper look into who Tupac was as a man, what polarized him, what drove his rage and the need to mete out justice, what influences drove his views of not just black life in America, but all life in America. Today, colleges and universities the world over study his poetry, found in his writings and in his music. We will study the man, his family, his life, and his death and influences on the world. that's a wrap on today's investigation fellow detectives if you found this episode both enlightening and captivating then please subscribe to our podcast show and our patreon leave a review and hit that like button share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms you can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content including valuable resources by expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. 
If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate and contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime podcast. Podcast. Bye.